Okay, we're continuing together our study in the Doctrine of the Covenants by studying together the book from the Garden of Eden to the Glory of Heaven by J.R. Williamson. And uh, we are in chapter 4, which deals with the subject of the Noahic Covenant. Now, before we launch into a study of the Noahic Covenant, I'd like for us to turn in our Bibles, please, to the book of um, Genesis chapter 6. Book of Genesis, the sixth chapter. Now, a little bit of background. Um, God, of course, created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2. Adam and Eve sinned and fell in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 4, we see uh, the story of Cain and Abel. And we see the development of sin in the world. Um, In chapter 5, we see... Um, the declaration of the godly line of Seth. And uh, when we come to chapter 6, we see that by this time the world is in a terrible state of affairs. And what has happened is that the godly line has gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And the wicked line has gotten larger and larger and larger to where the descendants of Cain... Uh, completely dominate the earth, and the descendants of Seth uh, are reduced, if you will, to one single family, Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And they are the only godly people that are left on the face of the earth. Now, you might ask the question, how did things get so bad? Well, we'll begin reading at Genesis 6 and verse 1, and we'll begin to see that. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, which is the godly line of Seth, saw the daughters of men, which is the ungodly line of Cain, that they were beautiful and they took them wives of all which they chose. And so instead of choosing wives based on character, they chose wives based on appearance. And so, as a result, they entered into these mixed marriages where the godly married the ungodly. And, of course, whenever that occurs, uh, the godly are always uh, subverted uh, in their testimony. And the result is is that ungodliness dramatically increased. Now, as a result of this phenomenal increase in ungodliness, it says in verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, that he also is flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. Now, when he said there his days will be 120 years, what he meant is that's how long he's got before judgment falls. And so God has marked out a time frame of 120 years from the day he uttered that word until the flood came. And of course, during that 120 years, Noah is building his ark. So it says in verse 4, there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, these giants were not physical giants. They were uh, gigantic despots or tyrants. They were big men uh, in the earth, Um, men who were men of renown, men of tremendous uh, tyrannical power. And um, so it says in verse 4, also after that, when the sons of God came in into the daughters of men and they bare children to them, they became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. So these giants were these mighty men of old, just two different words describe them. 
So they were men who concentrated great political, military, and economic power to themselves to the point that they were able to severely oppress um, and uh, control um, conduct and culture. And so we see the fruit of that, verse 5, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so the result of the breakdown of godly marriages is that the culture was flooded with wickedness and ungodliness. And so we see that the wickedness of man was great and that he was only evil continually. Of course, in his thoughts and his thoughts issued forth in action. And um, so we see in verse um, uh, 12... Or verse 11, it says, The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12, And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So we see that humanity was uh, just in a terrible state of affairs in terms of its moral behavior. The earth was filled with violence. The earth was corrupt. Um, the earth was only evil continually, and the wickedness of man was very great. So um, in the midst of all of this horror, God looking at it, God made a decision. Notice verse 6. It says, And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and fowls of the air, for repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah was an object of God's saving grace. God saved him, preserved him. And he was the last man standing in terms of uh, a patriarch who continued to follow uh, the Lord. And it says in verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, perfect doesn't mean he was morally perfect. We know that he certainly wasn't because he was a sinner. But what it means is that he was single-minded in, in his devotion to God. Uh, he was not double-minded. He didn't worship false gods for a while and worship the true God for a while. But he was... Um, he was pure or single uh, in his generations, and Noah walked with God. And so when somebody walks with God, what that means is that they go where God goes, they do what God does, they stop where God stops, they speak where God speaks. In a word, they shadow God. And so <clears throat> you have a shadow when you go walking out in the sunshine. It does everything you do, right? Goes where you go, stops and you stop. You know, um, it, it imitates you in every respect. And that's what it means <clears throat> when it says that Noah <clears throat> walked with God. So what we see here then is that God gives Noah instructions for making the ark. Verse 14, make the ark of gopher wood. And um, it says, room shalt thou make in the ark and thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And... Uh, <clears throat> He talks about the dimensions, and there's no need to read all of that. Verse 17, And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, 
When is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth shall die. But with thee will I establish my covenant. Now that is the very first time the word covenant ever appears in the Bible. And the very first covenant that we have in the Bible is this covenant that God makes with Noah. And notice it says, but with thee, you Noah, will I establish my covenant and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wives and thy sons' wives with thee of every living thing of all flesh to of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. And he goes into some detail about describing all of that. And uh, he tells him you're going to bring food on the ark. Verse 22, thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. And so in chapter 7, we see the gathering of the animals, the closing up of the ark, and the beginning of the rainfall to the point that it prevailed over the totality of the earth. Verse 19 of chapter 7 And the waters prevailed exceedingly upon the earth, and all the high hills that were under all the whole heaven were covered. Now, you can't get any more clear language for a universal flood than that. I mean, how else would God say it if he meant to say the whole world was covered with water? Um, And the idea that this is a local flood is ridiculous. It's completely contrary to um, the language of the passage, and it's also contrary to geologic history where evidence of a worldwide flood is very clear. And uh, then we come to chapter 8, where God remembered Noah, and the waters begin to assuage off the face of the earth, and the story is there about how he sent out the birds, and eventually they didn't come back, and the ark grounded. And um, verse 20 of Genesis 8, it says, And Noah built an altar unto the Lord and took every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, Now here is the beginnings of the Noahic covenant. I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake. For the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will um, <clears throat> I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. While the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Chapter 9, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth, and upon all the fishes of the sea, and to your hand are they delivered. Every moving thing that liveth shall be meat for you, even as the green herb. I have given you of all things, but the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. And surely your blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast will I require it. And at the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. And you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And God spoke unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, So now the sons are included. Okay? Back in chapter 6, it was just Noah. So he made a covenant with his servant, Noah. And now he makes, he expands that covenant to include other people. Verse 9, And I, behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you, and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle, of every beast of the earth with you, from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. 
So now we see the parties that are involved as Noah and all his descendants and all of the animals and all of their descendants. So um, all human life and all animal life are the participants in the Noahic covenant. And um, verse 11, And I will establish my covenant with you, neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there be any more a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud, and this is the rainbow. And it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the water shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. I will look upon it that I may remember, notice, the everlasting covenant. How long is this covenant going to last? Everlasting. The everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon earth the earth. Now, the biblical account of the flood uh, shows us several things. And among the things that it shows us, it shows us a very frightening preview of the coming day of judgment. Because what God did on the earth during the time of Noah is a prelude and a picture of what he's going to do in the end when he is going to bring judgment on the earth with fire. And so what we have here is a universal judgment of all people upon the earth, and uh, none escaped. But what we also have here is not only a a picture of the day of judgment, but also a wonderful picture of deliverance and salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we have judgment and salvation, those two things pictured in the story of Noah and the flood. And what we have in this story then is the first major covenant in scripture when God delivers Noah and he makes promises to him. Now we talked about the reason why this event occurred. And we said that there was this huge increase in ungodliness and wickedness in the earth. And there was this tremendous diminishing of righteousness and godliness in the earth. With the result that um, uh, the righteous were reduced down to Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. The church of God was down to eight people. Which makes our church pretty good sized. And um, so the point is, is that the wicked were increasing tremendously and the tares were mixed with the wheat and uh, the wheat became greatly, greatly diminished. And so it almost seems like that the godly had been completely eradicated from the face of the earth. And of course they hadn't, but they had almost been extinguished. And uh, because of this tremendous evil that was increasing, God pronounced a judgment upon the world. 
And so God had endured man's rebellion for about 1,600 years from the time of the creation until the time of the flood was somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 years. And uh, God had put up with this wickedness, but now God determines uh, to cleanse the earth from this evil. But of course, God uh, spared Noah because he saw that he was a righteous man. And the reason why, of course, Noah was a righteous man is because God had elected him and God had saved him and his wife and his three sons and their wives. And as a result, um, they were objects of God's grace. They didn't receive God's grace because they were really good folks. Uh, It was because they had received God's grace that they were uh, righteous people. And so what we have here then is this tremendous flood. And the reason why God sent this, among other reasons, is to be a warning to all of humanity from that point forward to this very day that um, God is capable of worldwide judgment. And in fact, God has already done it once and that God will be doing it again in the future. Now turn please to 2 Peter chapter 3 and we'll um, see that Uh, the significance of the Noahic flood in relationship to the coming day of judgment. 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, and beginning at verse 3, 2 Peter 3, 3, it says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, All things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. So we have all these people, you know, we've been saying Jesus Christ is coming back. And um, the scoffers are saying, it's been 2,000 years since he's been here. Uh, He's not coming back. If he was going to come back, he would have come back by now. And so he says, uh, they say there's not going to be any judgment because it's been a long time since there's been any judgment. Uh, indication of any judgment. Verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. So they're willingly ignorant that God, by his word, created the heavens and the earth, and that that earthly, uh, that, that earth that he made had uh, seas and it had land. It had oceans and it had dry continents. It says, verse 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, it doesn't say a region was overflowed with water. It says the world was overflowed with water. Okay? And as a result, it perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same order kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So what Peter is saying is, look, God has already brought judgment on the earth once in terms of the flood. And uh, they're saying it's never happened. Judgment's never happened on the earth. Judgment never will happen. And Peter's saying, wait a second. Judgment has already happened on the earth in terms of the flood, which clearly indicates that it can happen again and that it will happen again. And so we see that the flood is a picture and a precursor of God's uh, judgment in which he brought a cataclysmic uh, judgment of, of destruction upon the earth the first time. And that's precisely what he's going to bring the second time, except it's going to be 
by fire. So the flood tells us God is willing and able to bring worldwide destruction on mankind for our sin. Now, against this dramatic backdrop of judgment, God lays out his first covenant promise, which leads to the saving of eight souls from the flood. And as we saw in Genesis 6 and verse 18, God says, I will establish my covenant with you. You will go into the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. And so Noah was privileged to, by God's grace, be saved and be the object and the recipient of God's covenant. Now, as we looked then at Genesis 9, we saw that the recipients of the covenant was not just Moses, but it was Moses and all of his descendants and the animals and all of their descendants. Now, the promises that God made to this covenant community and this idea of the covenant community is an important concept for us to understand, okay? The covenant community is the community with, with which God makes his covenant. Now, in this case, the covenant community is the totality of humanity and the totality of the animals. That's the covenant community. They're the community with whom God has made the covenant. And of course, as we proceed through and we study the rest of the covenants, we're going to see that the covenant community uh, was greater or smaller depending upon the nature of the covenant. Sometimes the covenant community involved one person. Uh, for example, the Davidic covenant was a covenant with just one person. And there was no community. Uh, and then we see the Abrahamic covenant and and it was made with the community that, that, that flowed out of him and the old covenant and, of course, the new covenant. And so these all are covenants with an individual in the community that is attached to that individual. So here we see that there is a covenant made with an individual, Noah, and then with the community of people and, of course, the animals that were related to Noah and flowed out of, out of him. Now, when God made this covenant, he promised three things. He promised, first of all, that he would never again punish the creation as a whole for the sins of men. Uh, he said um, that um, never again. Well, let me turn back to the passage now in Genesis 8. Um, <clears throat> In Genesis 8, he said <clears throat> in verse 21, I will not again curse the ground any more for man's sake, for the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again smite any more every living thing as I have done. So what God is saying is that um, he's not going to, with a flood, destroy uh, the earth uh, anymore. Um, and then he Secondly, said that there's going to be a worldwide stability in the created order. Notice he says in verse 22 of Genesis 8, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. And so contained in this promise is the implication that uh, as long as the world lasts, and it's not going to last forever, uh, that God is going to have a stable world. And uh, 
the 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 um, great blessing of the Noahic covenant is it provides a framework of stability of the universe and of the world within which God's redemptive plan can be carried out. And so that's the reason why we're not going to have a meteor crash into the earth. <laughs> that's the reason why we're not going to have a nuclear winter in which the seasons will be destroyed somehow by some big cloud of dust or, or something they claim is going to happen. God has promised that the seasons are going to go on until Jesus returns and that there's going to be uh, physical stability in the physical universe. And so um, you're familiar with the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And one of the marks of the faithfulness of God is that he keeps the Noahic covenant. And so the hymn says, summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Now, we're in the wintertime right now. Uh, have you spent much time worrying about whether spring is going to come or not? You haven't. Uh, you expect it to come. You're counting on it coming. Why is it going to come? Well, it's going to come because God has promised it in the Noahic covenant. And then the third aspect of the promise is that God will never again destroy all flesh. And he will never again bring a flood upon the whole earth. And so what we have is not only continuity of the geographical uh, framework of the earth and the universe and all of its function, but we also have a promised continuity of the human race. And while we do have localized disasters and localized floods, and we have, you know, maybe a few hundred thousand people even being killed when the tsunami happened in Southeast Asia, there were 200,000 people killed in that, if you will, flood. Uh, but it was limited to the shorelines. And uh, it was limited to a few nations. And uh, it was an indication of what God could do. Um, but um, clearly his hand of restraint was operating there in that he limited the effect of that to uh, the number of people that he did. Um, we don't know how many people were alive during the flood. Uh, some speculate as many as high, some speculate that that it was as high as five or six billion people. When you consider the lifespan and when you consider um, the reproductive rate that man was capable of, and of course we don't know what the reproduction rate was, uh, but it could be anywhere from several hundred million to several billion people uh, that were destroyed in the process of the flood. But the promise that we have is of God's mercy in giving us a stable physical world and in the protection of the human race from being wiped off the face of the earth uh, by God. Now, in establishing this covenant, God did what he often does and what we often see in covenants, and that is it was sealed with a sign. And in this case, the sign was the rainbow. And uh, living in Oregon, we see rainbows quite often. I've seen a couple just this week as I've been out driving around. Um, and every time I see those things, I say, aha, there's the sign of the faithfulness of God, that he is not going to 
send a flood to destroy the earth and that we're going to have stability uh, in uh, not only the physical world, but also in the continuity of the human race. And this rainbow is put there not just to remind us. It's also put there to remind God. Now, it's not like God is capable of forgetting, okay? But he says specifically in chapter 9, he says, verse 14, And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud, and I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living thing of all flesh. And so God placed the rainbow in the sky to say that he sees, he remembers, and he is going to keep his covenant. Now, this covenant is a unilateral covenant. And what I mean by that is God was the one who initiated it. God was the one who dictated the terms. And God's the only one who has to do something to fulfill it. And so whenever you see a unilateral covenant, you know it's going to be accomplished because God always does what he says. The big problem with the old covenant is that it was a bilateral covenant and Israel had to do something and God had to do something. Well, God did his part, but Israel didn't do her part. And as a result, the old covenant was done away with because of the weakness and the unprofitableness of it due to one of the failings of one of the parties. And it was replaced with a new covenant, which once again is a unilateral covenant. And so what we have in the Noahic covenant is a unilateral covenant. However, that doesn't mean mankind didn't have responsibilities. And so we have read of those responsibilities. Man had a responsibility to be fruitful and multiply. Chapter 9 and verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so once again, uh, the commandment to Adam and Eve was reiterated to Noah and his, his wife and, and, and uh, his sons and their wives, and by extension to us as well. God wants his people to be fruitful and multiply. And that's why he's established the institution of marriage. And that's why he gives the blessing of children. And every Christian home ought to be focused on, among other things, uh, having children and raising up a godly seed and populating the earth with those who have been raised in nurture and admonition of the Lord and hopefully by God's grace saved. And so our responsibility, you're in the Noahic covenant, you people, okay? You are in the Noahic covenant. You're part of the covenant community. What are your covenant community responsibilities as a member of the Noahic covenant? Well, if God brings you a wife or a husband, as the case may be, um, you need to have kids. And in so doing, you are fulfilling your responsibilities in the Noahic covenant. The second responsibility that's been given, or the second aspect, is, is that the fear and the dread of man has been put on animals. Um, <clears throat> notice it says, verse 2, And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air. Now, we have to ask ourselves, is that a blessing or a curse? Well, it's a blessing because I sure wouldn't like cougars to like me and want to come and eat me. <laughs> it's nice that animals are afraid of us. And so when you run across a bear with cubs in the woods and you go, whew, he runs away instead of coming and eating you, right? That's why my son's still alive. Um, because God put the fear of man in an animal that was easily able to destroy him. 
And, um, and yet, on the other hand, it makes our job very difficult because the animals are afraid of us to domesticate them, to manage them, to exercise dominion over them uh, is, is, uh, is difficult. Um, but that's one of the things that God uh, did is he put the fear of us and the dread of us in the animals, which is a blessing with reference to animals that are, are bigger than us and meaner than us and tougher than us. Um, I like to dive in the ocean and I like the fact that sharks are afraid of me um, and that they will 99.9% of the time flee as opposed to attack. Uh, the third thing that happened here is God expanded the menu of humanity. Verse 3, every moving thing that liveth shall be food for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. Now, what this means is that under the Noahic covenant, we're free to eat anything we want. As long as it's not poison, we can eat it. If it moves, it's fine to eat. Now, of course, under the old covenant, there were some restrictions introduced, but under the new covenant, all those restrictions were removed. And once again, we're functioning under the dietary restrictions of the Noahic covenant, which is to say no restrictions at all except the eating of blood. It says very clearly in verse 4, But the flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall ye not eat. So you, under the new covenant, have a dietary restriction. It's the dietary restriction that's placed on you by the Noahic covenant, which you're still living under. It's an everlasting covenant. And that's why we don't eat blood. Um, and so when someone makes blood sausage and offers you some, you just turn it down. Now, I don't know how else people eat blood. Uh, that's the thing I've run into. There was a Russian lady I knew that made blood sausage. I don't even know what the stuff is or how to make it. It sounds revolting to me. But uh, even if it was attractive to me, I would refuse to eat it. And that's why we bleed our animals before we eat them. And that's why... You know, when you get steak out and you thaw it out, you drain the blood off and then you cook it on the stove. Now, obviously, we're not going to remove every single corpuscle. God doesn't expect that, but he does expect us to recognize and honor the dietary restriction he's put upon us. And the reason why is because blood has tremendous significance in the scripture. And uh, we're redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. And blood is something that we need to respect and value and not see as an ordinary commodity for consumption. So uh, there is the sanctity of blood, and that is still binding on us uh, today. And then uh, the last thing that's mentioned here is the subject of, of capital punishment. And um, God has not only given us... Um, uh, physical stability in the universe he's also provided for cultural stability in societies and what that means is that human governments are to be instituted uh, judicial councils are to be convened and justice is to be executed uh, all the way up to and including capital punishment for murder and the reason why uh, the murder of a human um, demands the death of the murderer is because of the significance of the act of murder. Murder is an attack on the image of God. Our text is very clear. It says in verse 5, And surely the blood of your lives will I require at the hand of every beast, will I require it at the hand of man, 
at the hand of every man's brother will I require it. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Now here's the reason. For in the image of God made he man. And so murder is an attack on the image of God. Not only our souls, but also our bodies reflect the image of God. And so to destroy a body is to attack the image of God. And God says someone who does that should have his own life taken away. Now, once again, uh, we are still under the Noahic covenant. And what that tells us is that the death penalty in God's eyes is still valid, binding, and required by his people. And so Paul, we see in the book of Acts, says, if I have done something worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. He recognized the legitimacy and the still functioning and binding nature of capital punishment even after Jesus came. A lot of people think, well, when Jesus came, you know, the death penalty was done away because the old covenant was done away. And it's true, the penal sanctions of the old covenant were done away. But this isn't a penal sanction of the old covenant, is it? It's a penal sanction of the Noahic covenant, which hasn't passed away. So while the penal um, sanctions of the old covenant did pass away, um, this penal sanction certainly did not. And so capital punishment is to provide for civil stability. And um, when we have this uh, response of capital punishment, it's a tremendous uh, deterrent to crime, and in particular, a deterrent to uh, the crime of murder. And so what we see then in this story and in this covenant is that it provides a framework for um, physical stability in the universe and in the world. We're going to have springtime and harvest and summer and winter uh, forever until Jesus comes. So the world's not going to get destroyed until Christ comes and destroys it. And uh, secondly, it provides us with um, uh, civil stability in that it provides for the functioning of society, the production of children, uh, what we eat, uh, what we don't eat, our relationship with the animals, our superiority over them, um, our relationship to our fellow humans. We're not to take each other's lives. And um, so it provides for um, geographical stability and civil stability within which God's plan of redemption in the seed of the woman crushing this, the head of the serpent will be uh, carried out. And so this story tells us that God's wrath is real. And it also tells us that God's salvation is gracious and that it is sufficient and able to deliver us from the wrath of God. Um, it's interesting to note that the word that is used for pitch, the covering that was on the outside of the ark, is the same word that's used for atonement. And so um, Christ is, if you will, uh, the layer of, of atonement, the covering that protects us from the flood of God's wrath. And so we have a wonderful picture here, uh, not only of God's wrath, but also of Christ's salvation of us from that wrath. And, um, you know, we often think it's hard to live for God uh, in the crooked and perverse generation in which we live, but God enabled Noah to do that. And we can live for God in our day as well, even if we're the last man standing, if you will, in a corrupt and, and perverse culture. 
we can stand with God and we can stand uh, for God. And so God is able to deliver us from his judgment. Eric? Yeah. That's correct. Yep. It's intentional killing. And accidental killing is not um, uh, morally culpable uh, unless it's done through gross negligence. Someone goes and gets drunk and drives and kills somebody, um, they, they take the responsibility for their actions. Yeah, murderers should be put to death. But that's why we have first-degree murder, second-degree murder, uh, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter, and then accidental. They're all homicides, but the question is, is what motivated the homicide? When I shoot somebody in self-defense, that's a homicide, but uh, not necessarily a culpable one. All right, well, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Noahic covenant. Thank you for the blessing that it is to provide us with a stable physical and cultural world within which the gospel can be propagated and carried out. Lord, we pray that you might help us to uh, recognize our responsibilities under this covenant and live them out. Um, and Father, in terms of, of having children and in terms of managing the animals and in terms of of rejoicing in your dietary provisions and respecting your dietary restriction and in terms of, of uh, the civil stability and order of society and, and punishing murderers in an appropriate fashion. Thank you, Father, for the rainbow, for the promise that we shall have stability until Christ comes. In Jesus' name, amen.